Read the Future Conversations is providing this podcast for educational purposes only. Read the Future is a nonpartisan, not for profit. It neither takes any position on any political issue nor endorses any candidates, political parties, or public policy proposals. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Veed the Future. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Read the Future employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of Read the Future or any of its officials. Uh, welcome, welcome to um, episode seven, uh, season finale of season two. Uh, today, our guest speaker is Elsa Kuwam. Uh, am I saying that right? Help me. No, it's Elisa. Elisa Kuwam. <laughs> well, oh, welcome, um, Elisa, to season two, episode seven uh, of Conversations Pod- Podcast. Um, this episode, I thank you for helping our um, audience um, find as well as become aware of the pillars of everyday life and as well as to really bring more attention to some of the uh, critical issues um, from childhood trauma to substance use, homelessness, and more importantly, the social cultural preventions um but to really jump right into the discussion right perhaps um skip the skip skip the introduction um um how however i believe the audience would appreciate getting to know who you are uh would you please help the audience become familiar with your own priorities relating to the issues of social trauma oh you muted yourself can you uh, my priorities you said yeah, 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 sorry. I, I think it's really, um, like, I would prefer we skip the introduction, but I be, believe for the sake of um, helping the audience, uh, yeah. if you could um, help, help them become familiar with a little bit more about your background, yeah. as well as um, um, how, how you really found social trauma as something to really prioritize in your own um, work. For sure, for sure. So uh, anybody who's listening or watching, welcome. I'm happy to share a little bit of space with you. Before we jump into any any sort of background or anything on my work, I think it's really important out of respect to everybody and where everyone is in life and, and work and family and all of these things to just say that um, if I talk about something or I mention something that is raw for you, or is in healing for you or something you don't like to think about and you don't want to think about that you have every every power and every decision to just mute this or fast forward it or move on so starting on the same page that we're all the same and we've all got things that we don't like to talk about or things in our stories and our histories and our families that we don't like to talk about and just sort of starting on on a, a level ground it's the way i like to start my classes it's the way i like to start any sort of speaking i do um i i, I was telling derek earlier that you can have nine phds and nine million dollars and ferraris and lamborghinis and that doesn't necessarily make you a healthier more whole better person um i come from a background where i was taught very early on that you help people and that kindness is is the best currency in the whole world um but also that we're the same and no one's better than anybody else and that we are here 
to serve each other. So um, I grew up on the East Coast in a very, in New York and New Jersey, in a very diverse um, community with a very diverse family. And again, I saw firsthand uh, just the way that diversity is strength and that diverse communities are the way that sustainability is is created. Um, I was this, it am, this huge nerd, this huge science nerd, and I, I loved biology and chemistry, and uh, I had intended on going to medical school. So come college time, I did all my pre-med requirements and I was all set to go. And then I find out, oops, you need one more, like social something elective, social studies elective. And I took an intro to social work class. I had had exposure as a kid to social workers in my community and things like that. And I thought, well, that, that'll that be fun. And I took an intro to social work class. And after one class, I was done. I changed my major and my entire world changed. The thing for me that changed my life was part of social work that relies on resiliency and what we would call the strengths perspective. So someone can have a, a litany, a list of things that we would think maybe are wrong with them or things to fix, but seeing what's good and what's powerful and what's already a resiliency factor or what makes someone thrive and survive, that's where we tune into, that's where we rally and that's where we brainstorm. And I was like, I've never heard this anywhere else. I've never heard this in medicine. I'm done. Change my major. Um, and my entire life changed after that. I went, I went, yeah, I went and I got my master's. I worked in, well, let me pause real quick. Just hearing that, yeah. there's something else than all the things that make you wrong and that you're sitting here listening today because you're amazing and you're surviving and you're persisting in light of all the other things going on in the world. Like that, I had never heard that anywhere else. And that's, yeah, yeah. That's life changing now, yeah. Yeah, and so we call that resiliency theory or strengths perspective. Um, and so I was, I got the bug, I was bit. I went, um, finished my bachelor's. I went and I got my master's. Um, and I was really interested in in like systemic issues and 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 why people are at risk and 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 why people are vulnerable. In social work, part of our mission is that we serve everybody but we specifically serve those who are oppressed, marginalized, ignored, silenced, people that that other people think have no value, right? Societally, someone doesn't have value. Those are our people. That's, that is traditionally where we serve. Um, and so I was really interested in these systemic issues and uh, I learned real quick about child abuse and neglect and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, amazing from the opportunity that it, it hit exactly what I was interested in. Interesting, all, yeah. Yeah, all these different places, right? And so where y- you are prejudging somebody and you think they're terrible, but they're just going through life and they need kindness and they need help and they need support. Um, so I did uh, quite a bit of child abuse and neglect work and um, I was doing my best. I had this shiny new... Uh, MSW and I was all trained and I was ready to go <laughs> and I was not helping the way that I thought I could help um, I had families who I would pour all these resources into and support them and then you know things would get better we'd put the families back together and in a couple months they would uh, come back across my desk again 
um, with some more abuse or neglect or whatever it was. And I thought, well, what what's going on? Why am I not helping? I'm, I'm wasting their time. I'm disrespecting them if I'm not helping. And I didn't know what I was seeing. Right. I got really irritated. <laughs> I'm still irritated. Yeah. And I tell my students all the time, follow what upsets you. Follow <laughs> what you're like, why don't they do something about that? Like the thing that you're like, why do they, that's, that's your contribution to the world. Because if you're angry, you're going to problem solve and you're going to hunt down information and you're going to try and be better and show up better in the world. I love everybody and everything, but the things that upset me are when people get 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 the, sh- the short end of the stick in the system or there's racism or ableism or oppression or someone thinks that they aren't worthy of belonging and love and respect, right? And so I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why I couldn't help my families. And I got really, really irritated. Um, and that irritation gave me some jaw problems, full disclosure, because I gripped my teeth, but it killed me through. <laughs> Seriously. It, uh, I understand. <laughs> yeah, like, all the time. And my wrinkle right here. I got from that. Um, uh, but it fueled me through a five-year PhD, and I was like, okay, I gotta figure out what is this thing that my families are experiencing that I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not helping, supporting. And I learned real quick that it was trauma. And this was right at the cusp of when we were starting to realize that trauma happens in the mind and the body and the family and the community. Um, it's not just a, I cut myself hiking, I need to go to the ER, I'm bleeding kind of trauma. That is a medical trauma, but I'm talking about the trauma that you can't see, the abuse, the neglect, the racism, the histories of slavery, the histories of of colonization, the histories of, of emotional wounds that are told in families, they're told in stories, right? And they're carried, they're held onto. And so I realized that I wasn't at all measuring or treating or even talking about trauma with my families. And I thought I was doing the right thing and I wasn't because it wasn't trauma informed. Um, And ever since then, my entire body of work and teaching, uh, I'm also a trauma informed yoga practitioner, teacher and student. Um, Everything for me revolves around trauma and realizing that we all have these stories we don't tell and that we all have experiences that stick with us. And sometimes those experiences are the reasons why we show up in the world the way that we do or the way that we show up negatively in the world or why we can't seem to make things to, to you know, to make things work. Yeah, yeah. And all my pre-med <laughs> stuff, the last thing I'll say, all my pre-med stuff yeah. um, I use every single day because I'm really fascinated by the brain and the way that trauma is encoded in the brain and it's encoded in the way that our brains learn and the way we respond to stimuli and the way our bodies respond to stress. So when you've got experiences of trauma or you've endured trauma, your body and your brain react very differently in the world. So I was able to bring all my pre-med stuff in and all my social work stuff in and kind of and all my yoga stuff in and kind of smush it together. And now I'm here. <laughs> now I I uh, lead the Master's of Social Work programs here too and I get to talk all day about this kind of stuff to my students too. Oh, like 
yeah. the, the thing like what you just mentioned like, yeah, has really helped me like, I mean become more familiar with she as well but also getting a a much more holistic view of trauma um not just from you know going hiking and and I boost my knee and I'm like ah <laughs> but the whole um body definition of trauma and and also the whole yoga teacher experience I'm actually looking to be a certified yoga teacher myself so like it's it's a good experience you just have you know in your belt of things and and that is remarkable um Elisa, right? I've 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 been saying Elsa in my head That's okay. since, yeah. since I've been emailing you. <laughs> so thanks for letting me know. It's Elsa. Elisa. Elisa. Okay. Elisa. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and and to really now go go further into the stats, right? I think um you probably heard of the AZ Town Hall. Um, and some of their works really boil down into what you just dis- discussed and, and to help define the scope of the problem, right? Arizona Town Hall published a report June 2019 stating that 20% of adults had mental, I- mental illness. Um, um, 5.6% had serious mental illness. Um, 7.1% had substance use disorder. Um, those are stag- staggering numbers. And and would you like you mentioned that there are different variables of trauma. And 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 if you could like uh, differentiate, um, what what do you see as obstacles to treatment, as well as prevention to um, between mental illnesses and 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 trauma? Ooh, well. Um, I want to step back and talk about the numbers a little bit because those estimates are really just that. They're estimates and they're estimates because uh, in, in research, there's something known as social demand, where if I ask you about something that is painful or upsetting or socially taboo, you're going to underreport, right? So when I teach research, I tell my students, if I ask people about their gambling or their drinking or how much pornography they're watching, of course, they're going to say, oh, I don't do any of that. I don't gamble. I don't drink. I don't I don't I don't do any of these things. Right. Um, same problems happen when I ask people or the researchers ask about drug habits. Right. People. Oh, I don't do that. Or it's not that bad. Right. Because there's a social taboo against that kind of thing. And unfortunately, this is the tragedy of our modern time. There's a social taboo against mental health in that. Hey, well, it's not that bad or just put your put your bootstraps on, buck up buttercup, you're okay. When in reality, mental health equates to pain and suffering, right? So if somebody, again, let's go back to the hiking analogy. Somebody fell and they've got a gush on their leg. Oh my gosh, yes, let's help you right now. You're in pain. I can see it. Let's take care of it. Let's give you pain. Let's, let's get you in rehab, all these things. But if I have a really bad car accident, and I have flashbacks from that and I can't sleep, I might get a couple days off of work, maybe some Ambien, and that's it, right? Because it's not that bad, right? Right, right. You can't see it, right? Right, you can't see it, you can't measure it. Well, you can, but you can't measure it by seeing it. And so the estimates are very conservative, very conservative. Um, People like me and people in my field are confident that most adults have experiences of trauma. So again, if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I've had a lot of things happen to me that are traumatic, 
you're not alone. Most of us have. Most of us have had one, two, three, four, five traumatic things that have happened to us. And so just kind of neutralizing that. Um, and, and if you're struggling, it's not because anything's wrong with you. It's because life is hard. And the older you get, things get more complicated. And then when you throw family and work and money and pandemics and inflation and pets and kids and all these things into that, it just gets harder. So again, I want to repeat that. If you learn nothing else from this, if you're struggling, there's nothing wrong with you. If you're struggling because life is hard. Life is hard, yeah. Life is hard. <laughs> and if we all just looked at each other and were like, life is hard, how can we help each other a little bit more? I'm confident the world would change, right? In, in a, and I'm and I'm hopeful that Gen I, Z is going to do that, right? I believe to you as well. So, I mean, this is one way of helping someone understand life is hard. So thank you for sharing. I mean, please continue. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And so when we think about prevention, that's one of the reasons why we don't have wide scale prevention is because we don't have the best estimates. Why don't we have the best estimates? Because there's still social taboo. And because there's still social taboo and, and status quo that says you should be able to fix it. Don't, I don't want to hear about your depression. I don't want to hear about your anxiety. I don't want to hear about your issues, right? That's what society says. There's no numbers, but there's also no funding. And when there's no funding for these things, we don't have equitable and accessible and culturally inclusive um, programming and supports that helps people, right? Because it's not just throwing services at them, it's walking a journey. So when, so when we look at the scope of a problem, right? Like if we knew everybody in the entire world was impacted by stress and adversity and trauma, that would tell us we have to do something. Um, but we don't know that and there's social taboo and not a lot of money for it. So that just creates this hot mess of not enough recognition, not enough support. And so what does that leave us with? That leaves us with a system that is reactionary. So instead of preventing things, we're waiting till they're, they're there, they're present, and then we're treating them. When I teach my students, I tell them it's like the bad enough. Is it bad enough for us to give money to it? Is it bad enough for us to help somebody, help a family, help a couple, whatever it may be? And unfortunately, we wait until things are bad enough in that they are severely disruptive to someone's life. So what does that mean? Someone has a hard time working, parenting, taking care of themselves, taking care of their household, uh, communicating, going to school. So when things that happen to you are emotionally disruptive to the extent that they're disrupting your daily functioning, then we'll do something. Right When you are at the point of perhaps hurting yourself or self-isolating or coping with substances or shopping or, or sex, right, or food, then we'll help, but not before then. So what does prevention look like to me? Prevention starts at the K-12. Prevention starts by talking to little kids about mindfulness and health and mental health and well-being. And then we carry that through to every every level of education, all the way up to higher education, and we embed it in communities so that everybody is working together um, to, to, to support each other because trauma is not only preventable, but it's treatable. So again, if you're listening to this thinking, oh man, I have had like five or six traumatic things that have happened to me. First, there's nothing wrong with you. Life is hard. 
second, it's treatable. It's absolutely treatable. So we can create a, a net, a system where no one falls through, but we, we have to change the way we treat each other. We have to change the way we talk about these things. Uh, I mean, you have mentioned if you, um, if you, um, on a few concepts, right, from anxiety to the taboo, to the social demand and social taboo of, of really how mental health is viewed socially. But um, I believe the audience may be able to identify the rational on to maybe able to um, want to hear more about uh, the the prevention aspect. If you could uh, examine that further, would you would you? Uh, mind giving us a bit much more of a larger aperture as to really how uh, some of the prevention, whether, whether it's from the funding or whether it's from the anxiety point of view. Yeah, so I think when we think about prevention, s some groups, right, some individuals we know are at risk. And those are the groups that we can front load with services and therapy and groups and and uh, trauma often lives in the body. It lives in the body and the mind and the family. So that's where I had mentioned yoga. That's where mindful movement and art therapy and expressive arts can really help you work out some of those, those elements where it's stuck in your body. So some groups, right, we know are at, at high risk um, for trauma, for trauma exposure, and we can help them and prevent them before it happens. But unfortunately, we might not know if something is traumatic for someone until it happens. And I'll tell you why, because you and I, Derek, we could both be, let's go back to the car accident example. You and I could both be in a car accident. It could be terribly traumatic for me. And you could be like, whatever, I'm fine, is a fender bender. And we could have been sitting next to each other, having had the same experience, but our brains perceive it differently. So there's what's known as bioindividuality when it comes to trauma. What's traumatic for me is not traumatic for you. So when someone says, I'm really struggling, it's not whether I think they're struggling, it's whether they think they're struggling. And that's all I need to know. So to some extent, my opinion or judgment on someone's trauma is irrelevant. If they're having a hard time, that's all I need to know. So the prevention gets a little bit more murky because I might not know what really is traumatic or the extent with which it is traumatic until it happens. But one of the, the next sort of steps is um, making sure that if someone has exposure to something or has an experience that is traumatic or disruptive or, or tragic in any way, shape and form, helping them get mental health first aid as soon as possible from a caring and competent provider who is not going to rush them. And de-escalating a situation and regulating a situation as soon as humanly possible may in part determine how profound that trauma becomes for them. So again, that time to treatment after something traumatic is, is huge. This is why when we look at tragedies that happen in schools, right? One happened today in Nashville in an elementary school, right? I'm not going to no. say the S word. I'm not going to say the S word. I'm not saying it. But when these things happen, there are entire groups of mental health workers, social workers, psychologists, counselors who are dispatched to schools to treat it right then and there 
so that someone doesn't have to wait to get help and their mind doesn't spiral and things don't get worse, right? So those are who are at risk, front load services, invest in those individuals early on. But when things happen, don't wait. Destigmatize, treat, support, triage, right? With the plan then to help them longer term. And so things like age, developmental level, exposure, um, previous history with trauma, all of these things can determine whether or not something disruptive becomes traumatic, right? And when something traumatic then becomes what we all know as PTSD, that's when they are profoundly disrupted from their life and well-being and functioning. And that sets off a chemical firestorm in someone's head that is harder to reverse, more long-term. I mean, it's possible. It just takes a little bit more effort the longer, uh, you know, the longer we wait. No, like, I think you have touched on some, touched on some very critical areas, right, where you're bringing in current um, events as well as touching on those uh, topics that are so relevant. Um, you look at um, immediate treatment, right, treating it before a time duration goes by. And then you're also looking at the um, individual level where um, uh, um, people are biased, right, the one that immediate attention and and the prevention variable isn't a matter of of really um, 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 second guessing yourself, but dispatching, as you mentioned, right, immediately, just as you would dis- dispatch um, firefighters to a burning building, you wanna get there as soon as possible. You want you wanna um, make sure that um, further exposure or further. Um, containment is um, in place before any serious or before um, again yeah uh, um, the challenge becomes non-manageable and to really not go into our second um, topic here right from 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 prevention right we can now focus on some of your own personal work um, the thing you like you, you you probably know Katie Hobbs the, the current governor of Arizona um, she also went to Arizona State University she um, you guys share the same um, alumni ASU I don't know if you guys were classmates or not but um, but to focus more on you right during your PhD um, at ASU um, social school of social work um, you you wrote a policy statement for the 11th edition of Social Work. Social Work speaks at the National Association of Social Workers. Um, the chapter you contributed was Rural Social Work, uh, which, which uh, to really help the audience uh, focus on really prevention as well as the treatment variables. Um, like how, how can Arizona communities um, really focus on that uh, social work training aspects, right? Uh, and as well as and 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 to really focus on the challenges faced by rural social workers. Um, 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 you commenting that um, challenges, the challenging issue of poverty at risk population and and service delivery at the community, family, and individual intervention levels that are unique and different from the urban practices right um so so what's your narrative there to really um again comment further on the prevention aspect on child trauma substance use and homelessness yeah that's a that's a lot that's a whole other like series but um 
Episode 2 is coming. <laughs> yeah, episode 2. Uh, Star Wars. Episode 2 is coming. So, so a quick a quick um, correction is that I worked on Social Work Speaks long after my doctorate. I had um, was a faculty member and I'd been working in New Mexico and I was actually running NASW, our professional association in New Mexico. And I was able to chair um, that chapter with a bunch of other amazing colleagues. And, you know, to, to get at your comment about workforce development and the challenges sort of of rural urban communities, I think, you know, we can learn and look at what's going on with health now and education in rural communities. Rural communities don't have enough doctors, enough nurses, enough teachers, enough public servants, enough anything, right? And so there's just not the workforce there um, because there's not a lot of people there. I mean, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of tax money. There's not a lot of of uh, funding for that. Doesn't mean there's not a lot of need. So amount of people does not equate. It's not a one to one ratio. It does not equate to need. Um, but there's just not a lot of people. And so when we think about bolstering any community, but specifically rural communities, we see mental health deserts. We see. Uh, food deserts, we see water deserts, right? We see rural hospitals shuttering and closing because they cannot uh, afford uh, to keep their medical bill, medical care is very expensive. They cannot afford to keep these, these hospitals open. Again, not because there's not a need, but just because the revenue stream is not there to offset, uh, offset the cost. And so I think about these things um, when we think about mental health too, like we have to think about uh, investing and you have to think about a return on investment when it comes to mental health and social work but also counseling and psychology and psychiatry and substance abuse counselors and educators and nurses these are public servants who are going to go into the community and yeah it's going to be resource intensive on the front end but you are going to see entire communities and entire generations change when we fully fund the social welfare system, when we fully fund the help-seeking professions that are are preventing some of these things, right? So if we think about waiting until it's bad enough to fund it, we're never going to be caught up, right? We've got to think about an ROI, a return on investment, and we have to have a little bit of de delayed gratification. So what does this mean? It means we need to over-invest in areas that maybe aren't super lucrative, right? because that's the right thing to do. Because it's what you would want for your family. It's what you would want for your community, right? In in when I when I was chairing this chapter, I was living in New Mexico. My husband's from New Mexico and he's from a rural town in northern New Mexico. And at the time, the hospital was starting to have to siphon off and close off units because they couldn't stay open. And they had to close the obstetrics and maternity ward, which meant that women had to drive an hour to get maternity care. And so if you have to drive an hour and you got to work and you got stuff to do and you got kids and all these things, you might forego prenatal care, right? Which also, by the way, includes mental health care and prenatal care. So when we make it hard or cumbersome for people to seek services, they're not going to, let alone expense. So if it's somebody who's not competent, who's far away, who costs a lot of money, and you, then you got to go there and talk about your trauma. It's just, it's not going to happen. And things that stay in darkness get worse.
right? It's like an infection. If you don't treat it, it just spreads. And so these are, again, are things that we can prevent and treat, but not when we don't have the kind of system that can care for people. And so on my end now at ASU, I have the, I'm not gonna cry. I have the honor and the duty of supporting the next generation of my colleagues. Those, my students who are gonna go out in the world and do this work and fan out into the whole country, really the whole world, and do this work of trauma-informed mental health care and integrative interdisciplinary care where they're working alongside mental health professionals, right? And they are supporting people, not from a you're bad and you're wrong, but from a, you had a complex life, let's figure out how to get you to where you wanna be. Um, and I'll walk with, I'll walk that whole way with you. So now I have the honor of sharing what I know and brainstorming with my, my students to figure out how to, to invest a little bit more and how to lobby and legislate and advocate so that people see that we're not wanting to waste money, quite the contrary, we want to invest in people. We want to invest in our environment. We want to invest in our systems so that we can serve each other um, and bring some esteem back to public service, right? And No, no definitely. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I was just thinking how, like, I mean, I... <laughs> I really would would vote for you if you were to go for public office <laughs> once. I'm not joking because that's those those are some of the courage that is lacking in um not just in in government but having the perspective that the return of investment is is uh, the country uh, the contributive um factor where um the like having the delay gratification and and not waiting till it's bad enough but instead looking at how can you prevent the darkness from growing or how can you really uh, um ensure that um um looking at the need aspect right and and giving people that confidence that uh this is not a situation that you're gonna be um living with for the rest of your life but because we are encouraging you to speak up more you can now see how the social um taboo can really um fall down um in some of these issues just just as, as a, a continue. point yeah just as a point so when someone has a mental health need that goes untreated right not only are they going to make less money right because they're not going to be able to show up at work but get promotions get education all of these things so their lifetime earnings go down and i'm not even including elements around like race and racism in the system i'm not even talking about that but just from a mental health perspective if someone has a mental health situation that goes untreated they are not going to be able to earn as much as they would compared to one of their peers. Same demographics, right? Who doesn't have that? And so think, over, yeah. the, over the course of their life, they're going to have less lifetime earnings. If they have children, that means that they are not able to give economically to their children in an even and fair way. So it's so it's creating generational issues that we can prevent and treat and intervene on. But then also on the back end, from the public end, it's less taxes that go into the public system. So by not investing in people, no one is winning. People aren't winning in this generation. The next generation is not winning because they don't have parents who can fully parent and fully realize their life. But then also the public is not is not benefit. No one is winning by underfunding these systems, funding these systems. Everybody thinks it's too expensive, it's too expensive. And I'm like, it's 
it's not too expensive. It's just your partisan politics that doesn't want to, you know, you, you don't want to fund these things. And it's funny, you mentioned running for office. I tell my students all the time, that this is not the first time I've heard that, by the way. And I say to them, but the problem <laughs> is that, the problem is that I don't think that either side is getting it right. I think that at this point, our conversation has devolved in such a way that we want to be right more than we, we want to yell at each other. And we want to be trendy on social media sometimes and we do problem solve. I'm not saying everybody is bad. I just think that there's a problem lot of- Problem solve, right, yeah. Yeah, and so my political party is social work. <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about me. Right. It's about serving other people. And if it doesn't work for other people, then let's not do it. If it doesn't help the greater good, right? So. Well, yeah. I don't know like the bipartisan approach is really something that you yeah. are championing, which is neither party has the solution. Let's let's problem solve. And I think you're also adding some really um incredible uh, viewpoints, which this whole episode has been remarkable. I'll, my my sheet of paper is like full with notes here, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna I, I think one of my goals is to uh, frame this and and put it on on the wall and look at man let this age and look at how amazing it ends up and to really not go go further into our, our conversation right is to look at some of the natural uh, mental health supports that are available um i think i'm um, looking when 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 you speak of funding you're speaking of really attacking those issues that are, are really cumbersome as you mentioned but like like every other issue right I think they are natural, like being, being a yoga teacher for me is something that I want to personally accomplish to just um, be able to like, uh, I think one, have the certification, but two, I don't have a goal of, of having a yoga studio someday, but it's it, it's a lifelong goal to just be able to, you know, teach yoga. But, but no, yeah, diving into um, um the as childhood trauma remains the biggest mystery, um, right? As children grow up, they increase responsibility of everyday life. You know, life is hard. Um, they become an impact. As, I mean, the question has already been answered, but um, what sort of natural mental health support would you encourage people to cater towards? So you speak of hiking, um, but looking at veterans too as well, right? You're looking at um, um, substance use, looking at um, the trajectory of coping with PTSD. Uh, um, how how can tools like technology be an asset to some of these um, circumstances? You know, like some of the immediate solutions that you would encourage um, anyone to really um, gravitate towards, um, as well as natural means that are available at the frontier of mental health su support, um, whether it's curbing traumatic ramifications or social adult st stigmatization. Um, what what would you want to leave the audience um, 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 that are experiencing predators? Put a choice, juice, put a juice. That word has okay. always been like mystical to me. So <laughs> I used to think it was put a juice, but put um, a choice. Um, so yeah, yeah. But, but, but to really wrap it up, what, what natural resources or best practices with mental health support? Yeah. So, the, oh wait, this is a whole other episode. So I think one of the first things I want to say is that 
if you're listening and you are somebody in a professional role, a social worker, a counselor, a teacher, whatever it may be, one of the best things you can do is tend to yourself and tend to your own self-care and get a therapist, get a therapist who knows how to work with therapists. Um, because oftentimes it's what we do. Absolutely. It's the interventions, but it's also who we are and being able to listen to somebody, hear their trauma narrative and really hear them without judgment. That's incredibly profound. So sometimes it's what you do, but also sometimes it's who you are. And that means that you sometimes are the intervention. So you gotta take care of yourself first and foremost. So if you're someone like me who does this for, you know, as a career, as a passion, that self-care, you all know what I'm talking about. You gotta do that. If you are in a family role and you are helping someone in a family role, shove your your shelve your biases at the door own them know them whether or not you think you're right whether or not you recall it happening that way again listening listening is one of the best supportive things that you you can do from somebody who is going through it and is in the middle of it you got to acknowledge and that you're in it and sometimes you just got to call it a day say i just had enough today i'm calling in sick to life and i'm going to take care of myself if you don't have a boss, a teacher, a partner who can help you when you need help, that's a whole other conversation. But just honor that we all sometimes need a break and take that break. And when we think about what you can do to help yourself regulate, it's pretty simple. Getting outside, drinking water, taking a shower, moving your body in a way that feels good, not in a way where you sweat and you're trying to build muscle and you're trying to get that six, six pack, that's not how trauma-informed movement works. Think about how your body feels good and do that. Sometimes that's gardening, sometimes that's walking, sometimes that's yoga, sometimes that's dancing, even if you aren't coordinated, right? Sometimes it's playing with your dog. If you have an animal, lean into that because animal-supported healing is evidence-based and it's profound. If you don't have an animal, find somebody who does and pet that animal because they are incredibly um, in incredibly therapeutic. I tell my students all the time, if you're struggling, I want you to remember the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? If you're hungry, get something to eat and drink more water because we're all dehydrated. If you're yeah. angry, don't don't go to bed angry. Do something about it or talk to somebody. If you're lonely, go some, go find your friend and get a hug. And if you're tired, lean into that because trauma is exhausting. No, sometimes, right, yeah. Sometimes you you know you just need to sleep. Um, there are a bunch of amazing mental health apps that you can use. There's telehealth. There's texting. You can text counselors and things like that. Um, so there's lots of different ways to connect. But I would say the last thing I want to say about this is when we think about self-care, uh, it, it it's often sensationalized, right? And it's clickbaity and people make you pay for it. And it's become monetized. It's become involved in the, integrated into the market of capitalism. And it doesn't have to be that way. Self-care is anyone or anything that makes you feel like you. So if it doesn't make you feel like you, if it, it a person, place, thing, food, cultural practice, then it's not, it's not right, right? So if something makes you feel bad, don't do it, right? 
Watch your habits, gambling, smoking, drinking, eating, shopping, sexual behavior, social behavior, either too much or not enough. These can all become very maladaptive, right? If you need alcohol every night to sleep, that's not good long-term, right? So right. kind of know, know who you are, know what makes you feel good, know who makes you feel good and go to them and let, I always tell my students to have one or two friends that know you enough and you have this um, agreement with them so that if you're having a hard day, you can just call them. Exactly. It's your it's right. your own support network. You can just call and be like, hey, I need to come over or hey, can we watch an episode of TV together or hey, can we, can you just listen? Right. Those are people that are not going to question, right? So think ahead of time about what you can do when you're not feeling good. Put it on a note, frame it. These are my people. These are my things. This is what I got to do. Right. And know the things that you're going to want to do, which are not great. Gamble, drink, have sex, you know, uh, smoke, whatever you're going to do. And, and just sort of know what you're working with so that when your trauma is triggered, call my best friend. Don't go to the casino, right? Take a shower. Don't drink alcohol, whatever it may be. So you kind of yeah. know how your brain working. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Like I think you mentioned one thing that like I, I think is very therapeutic is uh, drinking water. Like, like I, I'm a huge hiker, so like I, I, I tend to um, my car has more water bottles like in it than my fridge does, <laughs> but <laughs> that kind of on the basis where like um the weather has been amazing late. I've had some really cool, um, you know, uh, I mean, California is having a whole different environment, but I think I've been going out hiking recently and I know, yeah, like, I, I think just, as you said, drinking water is a very therapeutic thing. The whole acronym, um, very effective as well. And just some of the things that you mentioned, right, where like those general principles really can, can really um, strengthen your, your support system your support system and having that friend that can really be um, non-questioning, right? That you can really build that um, that trust. And and even for therapists, that therapy or the therapist, which is something that I've never thought about. But yeah, yeah, those those uh, those are really, um, like I, I said- I have one more thing to add. Please, please I have do. one more please, thing to add. Please do, yeah. Don't be afraid. If you have thoughts of uh, harming yourself or ending your own life, reach out to the suicide hotline. They have a text line. They're amazing. They are non-judgmental, culturally competent people. They will sit and talk with you and just listen. So if you're feeling that way, anybody listening, do me a favor, hang on for one more night, call them, they'll help you, right? You can get through it. It's it, And your best days are ahead of you. You have to hold on to that. Imagine your life living, I haven't had my best day yet. And hang on to that. And don't be afraid to use those people. That's what they do. They help you when you're feeling like you can't manage anymore. So. Exactly. No, I haven't had my best day yet. And how can the audience reach out to you? I, 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 I can give you my email if you, anybody ever wants to come meet. If you're interested in social work and you want to come learn about social work, I'm happy to talk about that all day. We only talked about a little part of the work. No, um, yeah. So season three is that, coming. Season three is yeah. coming. So, like, I think uh, I think that is one of the cool things about um, the podcast is really where. <laughs> Um, bringing in the audience and, and you are speaking to a large volume of listeners um, and I think the goal is to I, I, I 
I went to um, New Paths for You um, headquarters in downtown Phoenix a few days ago, and I really learned a lot about some of the situations that we just discussed. And I think it's it's just amazing to hear that yes, there is um, alternatives, there are routes um, further, and I think just being able to um, um, reach out to the support and, and, and building that support as well as tackling the childhood trauma um, ecosystem is a good way to really start, um, like you said, right, um, 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 containing the situation early rather than letting it um, um, become into a bigger issue. So, uh, well, also, uh, I, I think your email is the ASU email. Yep, that's correct. And if anybody has questions afterwards too, we can we can work on it in the interim or on episode two, whatever whatever you need to do. So thank we'll... you so much. No, I, yeah, I mean just to wrap it up, we have covered um, AZ Town Hall, uh, one of one of the local organizations here that focuses on mental health uh, as well as substance use and homelessness. Uh, we went into some of your own work um, in New Mexico, as well as looking at some of the political as well as policy. Um, um, variants in in um in social works and I think it's just good to always gain um a, a very credible view like else I've been saying your name wrong again. Um, That's okay. It's what happened. It's okay. Um, Isa. Elisa. <laughs> it's okay. It's all Elisa, good. Elisa. Elisa. Um, yep. Elisa, uh, yeah, th- thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate it. And I think um, uh, episode two, season three, uh, featuring Elisa Kuwam, coming soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Read the Future Conversations is providing this podcast for educational purposes only. Beat the Future is a non-partisan, not-for-profit. It neither takes any position on any political issue nor endorses any candidates, political parties, or public policy proposals. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Beat the Future. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Read the Future employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of Read the Future or any of its officials.